Um, boy, that's loud, Laura. It's loud in my own head. Is that too loud? <clears throat> well, before we begin, I would like to pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this day, for the sunshine that um, is warming the panes of glass in this window over here. We thank you that we have um, shelter from the cold and that the furnace is working and that it is going to heat up the room. Thank you that by the time Bible study happens tonight, it'll be nice and toasty in here and we can enjoy it again. We thank you, Lord, that you have given us your word. We thank you that you have given us your son, that you have redeemed us by your mighty hands, that we are your people. And we thank you, Lord, that even as Jesus returned to heaven, he said, I will not leave you alone, but I will send one, a helper, an advocate, who will teach you, who will show you, who will be with you. And so we thank you for that this morning. We thank you that your indwelling power and the Holy Spirit is with us here today, warming our hearts and our minds, illumining us to your word. Also, Lord, um, giving my words meaning, importance to our hearts and minds. So I pray, Father, this morning that you would be our teacher, that your word, as we open it, as we talk about it, um, as we mull it over in our hearts and our minds, that we would hear from you. Um, you're really the only one that has anything to say here. And we thank you that you speak. It's in Jesus' name I pray, amen. To begin with this morning, I want to share with you from J. Vernon McGee. Does anybody know who he is? <laughs> Through the Bible. Um, I have his commentary series, and I like to see what old J. Vernon has to say about stuff. And, and so I just, I just thought he did an interesting job here. So I want to share with you um, what he has to say about the prison epistle. This is how he opens the commentary. A quartet of men left Rome in the year A.D. 62, bound for the province of Asia, which was located in what was designated as Asia Minor, and we currently call Turkey. These men had on their persons four of the most sublime compositions of the Christian faith. These precious documents would be invaluable if they were in existence today. Rome did not comprehend the significance of the writings of an unknown prisoner. If she had, these men would have been apprehended and the documents seized. When these men bade farewell to the Apostle Paul, each was given an epistle or letter to bear to his particular constituency. These four letters are in the Word of God, and they are designated the prison epistles of Paul since he wrote them while he was imprisoned in Rome. He was awaiting, as we know, a hearing before Nero, who was the Caesar at the time. Paul was a Roman citizen and had appealed his case to the emperor, and he was waiting to be heard. This quartet of men and their respective places of abode can be identified. From Philippians 4.18, we learn that Epaphroditus was from Philippi, and he carried the epistle to the Philippians. Tychicus was from Ephesus, and we learned that from Ephesians 6.21, and he carried the epistle to the Ephesians. Epaphras was from Colossae, and he had the epistle to the Colossians, Colossians 4.12. And then from Philemon, we learned that Onesimus 
a runaway slave from Colossae, carried the epistle to Philemon, who was his master. These letters represent a composite picture of Christ, the church, the Christian life, and the interrelationship and functioning of them all, end quote. I want to give you that last sentence again because I think it just really does sum up what we're doing here today. These letters present a composite picture of Christ, the church, the Christian life, and the interrelationship and functioning of them all. Spending much time in each of these letters is to be commended to all of us. I love that Brian has taught through them on Sundays, but we must stay in them for the very reasons that McGee mentioned. For our lesson this week, we first explored being in Christ in Ephesians 1 through 3, and then we moved into the core of the study for the rest of the week on Christian conduct. We covered wise living, godly speech, right thinking, and forgiveness as our subtitles each day. Christian conduct is the do's of living this Christian life of faith. The dictionary defines conduct as our manner of behaving. For the Christ follower, our behaving, our conduct, is the outflow of the inner relationship that we have with Jesus Christ. Think about all the behaviors that we read about this last week in our lesson. Ones to put off versus ones to put on or practice. I'm choosing not to spend my limited time today with the put off ones. (laughs) We know what they are that they are our natural selves, our flesh, our sinful state, living and operating in this fallen world. Things like lying and grumbling and being critical, having coarse language, gossip, slander, all those things we talked about in our group today, boasting, causing dissension. I want to instead focus on the conduct we are to aspire to, to put on, wear, if you will, but not just what those behaviors are because we talked about them in class already they were in our lesson what I want to talk to you about today is rather the how and the why of conducting ourselves in these ways how can we live wisely with prudence speak with gracious words praising God encouraging each other expressing thanksgiving how can we think right honorable true and pure thoughts And how do we practice forgiveness? Many times in Paul's letters, he said, imitate me. As a young woman, that used to bother me. I thought Paul sounded arrogant, prideful. But as I grew and matured in the word, I began to see Paul's transformed life, his complete and utter devotion to our Lord, and I wanted, even longed, to be like him. Imitate him? Yes. Paul is very explicit in his writings to share and to show the transformation of his life from a zealous Pharisaic Jew who persecuted the early church even unto death into a man in a deep and abiding love with the Lord Jesus. A man committed to Christ no matter the cost. Paul was a man broken by his sin and recreated by the gospel. Dan's last point in his lecture last week speaks to this when he said Paul's apostolic ministry is legit. 
meaning that we should take great heed to his words and his work. Paul's inspired words have been preserved for us as an example to follow, imitate me. For our edification, building up. For our training in righteousness, that we, in his words, might present ourselves approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of, of truth. So back to my first ask this morning, how do we do it? As followers of Jesus Christ, born again through faith in him and filled with his spirit, we are experiencing the same, the same transformation that Saul experienced. There is a starting point, our conversion, our justification. Then there is the journey that begins our sanctification and then that is completed in heaven our glorification it's the same journey so here we are on this journey individually and corporately as the church the body of Christ the journey is our growth in Christ likeness that's what sanctification is the big word but that's just what it is how are we growing into the sun so how can these behaviors, this Christian conduct, come about? The short answer, and you all know it, is by the Holy Spirit dwelling in us, right? That's the short answer. But how does he do it? And that's what I want to talk about today. I would like to submit to you that he does it in and through our practices of spiritual discipline. How many of you have ever read or attended a workshop on spiritual discipline? Lynn, I, wanna, I really want to see where we're... Okay, so good. <laughs> Thank you. Um, you might be familiar because of that with Dr. Donald Whitney, who is a professor at Southern Baptist Theological here in Louisville, and he has written and taught and led workshops extensively on this topic. And really, much of the rest of my lecture kind of relies on what I've learned from him. Dr. Whitney defines spiritual disciplines as those practices found in scripture that promote spiritual growth among followers of Jesus Christ. I'm going to say it again, but I want you to notice the word practice and found in scripture because they're very important. So he defines it as those practices found in scripture that promote spiritual growth among followers of Jesus Christ. Dr. Whitney divides them into two areas, I guess. He, he calls um, the spiritual disciplines habits of devotion and habits of experiential Christianity that have been practiced by God's people since biblical times. Other authors call spiritual disciplines habits of holiness. You may have heard that term before. I want to share with you in our time today six characteristics of spiritual disciplines that Dr. Whitney shares and wants us to consider um, and keep in mind as we think about practicing spiritual disciplines, what are they, etc. So the first um, one that he brings to light is that the Bible prescribes both personal and interpersonal disciplines. Just as a side note as I'm talking today, I want you to hear that I'm going to use the word practices many times in place of disciplines. And the reason is 
for me is that practices seems to me a more of an action word. Um, it's more of a, of, a pra of practicing, of doing it over and over, a progression in that. Whereas many times I think the word discipline either has a negative view or if we understand the meaning of the word, it tends to be more academic, like the disciplines of science or um, the arts or whatever. And so, it, and so we don't really get that action word feeling to it. And so I'll, I'll interchange them and, and really say uh, practices quite a bit. So two types, the ones we practice alone, those personal ones, they're private. An example would be your private prayer life, how you pray at home. <coughs> when you're by yourself. The second one, of course, then, is others, the ones that we practice with other Christians, those interpersonal practices. An example of that would, of course, be public prayer. So you have your private prayer life, and then there's times for public prayer. And what we need to notice is that Jesus Christ practiced both. Did he not? For instance, he prayed alone. He withdrew to a mountainside or, what, or wherever and left the disciples where they were and he went and he talked to his father alone. But then we also have recorded his public prayers where he prayed for the disciples, where he prayed for the crowds, where he taught how to pray by praying publicly. The second point that Dr. Whitney wants us to understand is that spiritual disciplines are activities. As I've stated, they're, they're action words. They're not attitudes, although the heart matters and we'll get to that but they're not attitudes or characteristics or graces or fruit of the spirit he says they are things you do you read your bible you study meditate pray memorize fast worship give serve they're all action works they're things you're doing a word of caution here comes from dr whitney when he says now the goal of practicing or even doing or doing any given discipline is not about the doing as much as it is about the being. So we do what we do in order to be like Christ, to be with Christ. So it's, it's not so much about the doing of the activity, although that does matter. It's not so much about the doing of the activity as it is about the being, being like Christ, being with Christ. The key verse, he says, is 1 Timothy 4, 7. <coughs> Again, from Paul. Where he counsels Timothy, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. So the goal of spiritual disciplines or spiritual practices, the goal is godliness. We might say Christ-likeness. And the biblical means to that is to discipline ourselves by the power of the Holy Spirit, rightly motivated. All right, so the goal is godliness, and the biblical means to that is to discipline ourselves by the power of the Holy Spirit, rightly motivated. Can you practice things wrongly motivated? Absolutely. You know, if, if you're reading your Bible because you want to check it off every day that you read it, your motivation might be wrong. Um, if you're just going to church on Sunday mornings because it's a ritual or a habit or a sense of duty that you think you're supposed to do, then your motivation for that could be called into question. 
so we can practice them wrongly as a Pharisee. But rightly motivated by the Holy Spirit, we do, we act, we practice in order to be like Jesus, to be with Jesus. So just even think about that in terms of what are the spiritual practices that you engage in. Are you doing them with the motivations to be with the Lord or to be like the Lord? The third point that he brings out is that spiritual disciplines are practices that are taught and modeled in Scripture. They are biblical. He warns us of the danger of developing any practices that are outside of Scripture. Why? Because it opens us up to what I or a particular speaker or author might determine as best for my spiritual health instead of what God has revealed in Scripture. We must be in the Word, testing anything and everything against the truth found there. I was trying to think of some examples of what this might be. Um, I have a list here, and then something happened last night that I'll share in a second. But (coughs) chanting words. Somebody says, oh, if you just, you know, use use this phrase. Or how many of y'all remember the prayer of Jabez back in the 90s? I actually have the, I I don't have it anymore. I had the book. Um, And how that became this magic potion or something. (laughs) That, you know, if people read the prayer of Jabez out of the Old Testament, this obscure man who God heard and answered his prayer, that somehow that became some formula for modern-day Christians to get what we wanted from God. Um... There's danger in that, even though, even though the prayer of Jabez is in the scripture. So, hmm, mo- motivation might have been a part of that. What about some organization that says, if you just send us this seed money every month, God will hear your prayers. Perhaps wearing or not wearing certain clothes, or eating or not eating certain foods. These are all outside of scripture, prescri- uh, scripture prescriptives, but... In fact, some of them, even as I wrote it, I was like, but, but Paul and the apostles dealt with many of these in their letters. Wear what, what you're supposed to wear, what you're supposed to eat. They even addressed these issues in the first century church and said, it's not about that, people. And so there's a warning there of things not to do um, because we think that even if they have some connection to the Scripture, They're not a biblical practice in order to be like Christ or to be with Christ. So related to that is the fourth thing that he says, knowing that spiritual disciplines that are found in Scripture are sufficient for knowing and experiencing God and growing in Christ-likeness. What does 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 tell us? We should know it well here because Brian quotes it to us often enough. All Scripture, all Scripture. Every single chapter, all scripture, is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. So regardless of what some person may say about some practice or another, that if you do this, you know, pray that prayer, you will experience God. Whitney says, whatever benefit might be derived, 
from some of those activities, the best that we can say about them is they are not necessary. They're not necessary. If they were, the Bible would have told us. What I wanted to tell you last night, I had a, I don't know if this is a good thing or not, I had a conversation via Facebook. I took it private, but it started public um, with a, a young person in my life posting about a blog that she was writing. And she was defending someone who has written a new book that, in my estimation, could very well lead women astray. And she was defending this person in her blog. I read it, I let it go, and I just thought, oh, youngin. That's kind of what I thought, oh, youngin, you know, and I wasn't going to do anything about it. And then I was thinking about this, and when I went to bed, I was like, I just, I need to at least address it with her personally. And so I end her and um, told her my concerns that she had, because of circumstances in her life, has maybe has been given somewhat of a platform. There might be people reading this blog that she's writing. You ever wonder if people re read your blog? You know, <laughs> it's just like you have this blog, and it's like, did anybody read it? Um, but if people are reading that blog, then, then her post yesterday has the potential to lead some women astray, to cause them to go and pick up this book. And and might be in trouble because of it. And so I, I told her I needed to address it with her. And so we talked back and forth for a few minutes, and it was great, and, and everything ended fine. And she is a, she is a maturing young woman. And, and the point that she was trying to make last night, you know, with me, um, was that she was just trying to speak out against quick criticism when people haven't read or whatever. I basically told her I didn't need to read it. <laughs> that it was obvious that it was something that we should not um, be allowing ourselves to study and hang on to. So those things will come up. But what Whitney is wanting to say is that the scripture, the Bible is sufficient. It has what we need in order to know the Lord, to be with him, and to grow in Christ's likeness. It's all here. And so adding on, with some, you know, come lately author, and we've all been, I mean, I'm 60-something years old. I'm 60. I'm just 60 years old. But in the course of my, I started to say 60-something. No, I'm not. I'm just 60. I'm not 60-something. Um, in the course of my Christian life, we've seen them come and go. They've got the, you know, the latest way to experience God or to know him better, and they want to add something to it. And so what Whitney is saying is that we don't need anything else. So the best we can say is that they're not necessary. We have everything we need to know right here. Okay, fifthly, he says spiritual disciplines are derived from the gospel. It's kind of related to the one I just said. Derived from the gospel and not divorced from it. Rightly practiced spiritual disciplines are to take us in deeper into the glories of the gospel of Jesus Christ and not away from it as if we've moved on. He even used the example of, like, people get saved with, like, the ABCs, and so you think, you know, the gospel is elementary school or kindergarten even. And then you have this desire to grow in your spiritual walk, and so then you begin to, you begin to look for other things beyond Scripture 
beyond the gospel in order to help you grow? And Whitney says, no, <laughs> you don't need to do that. Um, whatever we do should be grounded and centered on the gospel of Jesus Christ. Um, I think many conferences, authors, as I've mentioned, training workshops do this. Instead of focusing on and keeping us focused on the main thing, the gospel, they seek to add to it. I remember back, hmm, it's probably been 25, 30 years now, John and I went to a conference um, from, it was over in Lexington, we drove up from Bowling Green. It was being held, I think it was at Emmanuel Baptist or something, I think. Um, the author that was speaking was someone that we had read, a couple of his books, and we thought, wow, he's going to be in Lexington, we want to, you know, so we went to this conference, it was a two-day thing, spent the night, and, and it was very mystical, and um, what they were teaching was, um, and so we left that weekend very confused and wondering, instead of being uplifted and edified in our faith, we almost left questioning and wondering if we really were doing this right, you know? And so it, it did not have a good purpose for us. Um, and it wasn't centered on the gospel. It was an, it was an adding on to um, as Dr. Whitney warns us about. So not only do pseudo or, um, yeah, pseudo Christians perhaps do this, other Christian religions do it as well when they begin to add works that must be done in order to attain favor with God or to move up or move on in your walk, that they want to add something to the gospel. <coughs> Lastly, his number six, spiritual disciplines are a means and not an end. The end of spiritual disciplines or practices is godliness. We are not godly just because we practice spiritual disciplines, though. That's the error of the Pharisees and of every workspace religion that's ever existed, including legalistic Christianity, who want to make the work the end, instead of seeing it as a means to the end. Spiritual disciplines are the means, rightly motivated, to reach the end, which is godliness. Now, you might be thinking as you're sitting here going, I wonder what she's calling spiritual disciplines. So I want to talk about a little bit about that. The Bible doesn't give us a list, does it? You think about what, what other lists are in the Bible. We have the list of spiritual gifts, don't we? Like three or four different lists. We have, um, in our lesson this week, we had a list of, of Christian conduct, things to put on and things to put off. So there are lists in Scripture. There's not a list of spiritual practices that I could find. So what do we do about that? Well, it's back to needing to know God's Word. But we can use, um, the Bible doesn't give us the list, but we use the Bible to find out what it is we are to do. It does tell us, therefore, many things, many practices that we should be doing in order to grow like Christ or to be with Christ. So the list that I developed is not exhaustive by any means, but I want to share some things with you that I felt like are things that are spiritual practices that maturing Christians should be practicing. So on the personal or private side, 
you have Bible reading. You have meditation of that Bible. You have memorization. Miss Katie Talcott throwing it down our throats every time we turn around. Memorization is important, even for those of us who struggle with it. Worship, private worship, private praise. Maybe we do sing in the car. Maybe we do sing when we're doing some other things, and we grow, we grow closer to the Lord. That activity of driving or gardening or whatever is just by itself. But we use that time to commune with the Lord. And so maybe we meditate on a piece of scripture. Maybe we work on that memorization um, and use that activity in order to practice the discipline. Something else I thought of is Sabbath rest. We don't rest enough. And the Lord prescribed it at creation and continued to talk about it all through scripture. Now, without being legalistic about whether or not it's Sunday and how much you, you know, is it the whole day or is it, you know, well, what if I have to work and all this other stuff? Nah. Sabbath rest. When is your Sabbath rest? When you draw aside in solitude or as a family to worship, but then just time alone that you have in solitude to experience Sabbath rest secret acts of service that no one knows about. Jesus talked about that. Remember he talked about the Pharisees and doing their good works in front of people and how that was their reward when people noticed what they were doing. And he said, you do, you do things in secret. People don't know about it. Those are spiritual disciplines to do those kind of things without, without reward, without acclamation from anybody else. Just doing it because it's like Christ doing it because it makes you be like Christ and he knows about it so I think that's another one that we do on the private side and then my last one that I listed was submission to those in authority when I was first joined BSF um, back in the mid 90s Bible study fellowship they had a lot of rules which they'd least they'd loosened rules my understanding even then They've loosened them even more. But back then, there were still quite a few rules that had to do with when you were in leadership. And so when I was asked to join leadership and given these rules about how I was to conduct myself and, you know, things, things, I chafed against them. You know, I just like, why? 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 What difference does it make? And I was vocal about some of them. Until one day it dawned on me from the Lord, who do you think you are, Laura Beth, that's my name, Laura Beth, that you should reinvent the wheel. This organization has been doing what they do and doing it well at that time for like 40 years. So why do you think that you need to show up and tell them some other way to do it and they should listen to you, you know? And I mean, doesn't that sound ridiculous? But yet when we chafe against those in authority over us, we're doing that. We're saying, I have a better way. You people should listen to me. So we need to submit to those in authority over us in our personal lives. So who is that? Well, it's our spouses if we're married. Beyond that, it's our leadership at church. It's our government. It's, all kind, it's our bosses if you have a job. And so one of the ways that we are like Christ is when we submit like he did. Think about how he submitted. 
we submit to those in authority over us. So then on the public and congregational or corporate side, I would list almost the same thing, but we do them in a corporate or community way. Bible reading, Bible study like we're doing here today, hearing and sitting under the preached word, being a part of and participating in corporate worship and praise and thanksgiving. Uh, in our group this morning, you know, singing the spiritual psalms and um, as we had that in the verse, I think that is talking about corporate worship. I also think that another way we practice in the community of believers is when we have fellowship and friendship with one another that holds us accountable and builds up our faith. And then service that is not secret, but that we do together that includes tithing and giving of offerings. And then finally, submission again. Not only to those in authority over us, but as Paul talks about in Ephesians 4, submission to one another in the body of Christ. Sometimes that's harder to do. That's when that chafing against, you know, somebody's edict or I think I have a better way comes to the fore. <coughs> Submitting to those in the body reminds us not to think too highly of ourselves, which is another admonition from Paul. So check me out. Does my list, which is not exhaustive by any means, line up with Whitney's definition? Those practices found in Scripture that promote spiritual growth among followers of Jesus Christ? I think they do. So I believe that out of our practice of spiritual disciplines comes the behaviors, the conduct that was emphasized in our lesson this week. Practicing spiritual disciplines is the how. Filled with his spirit, the more I practice these disciplines, the more I am transformed, thereby all the more being able to live wisely, speak graciously, think rightly, and forgive. The flip side of this is conduct unbecoming. Have you heard that? Military background. People get discharged for conduct unbecoming. As a daughter of the king... That is not something I want on my resume <laughs> as the daughter of the king, that I have produced conduct unbecoming. When my behaviors in life disparage the Lord, bringing his name into disrepute, it's those fleshly behaviors of my natural self that Paul was discussing in his letters. That's what's at work, and we are so prone to them. When we are not practicing the personal and corporate disciplines. You think about that in your own life. You miss church, you go on vacation, you don't go this Sunday, you don't go next Sunday. You know, if you, you, all of a sudden you're just like, wow, you know, you, there's a part of you that hungers to be back with the body. That's the spirit in you. But in your flesh, you're like, oh, well. And then you notice your everyday life is impacted. Your temper's short. Your language is coarser. Your attitudes are messy, ugly. It's because you're neglecting spiritual disciplines that we've been given to practice. When my 30-year-old son, now 30-year-old son, was about three or four, the Lord spoke to me concerning my conduct towards my kids. That was unbecoming. In this particular instance was at the end of an afternoon when I was really tired and scrambling to finish chores and prepare dinner and think about all the stuff for the next day. It was basically an everyday kind of day. 
my kids loved this time of day because it was the time of day they ran around the house like wild animals. The time of day they were tired and they bickered and they fought and they were loud. I would yell at them to be quiet. Kind of an oxymoron, don't you think? And to settle down. And they mostly ignored me. So I yelled more and more and louder and louder. And on that particular day, my three-year-old son stopped in his tracks, looked up, to, looked up at me with his big brown eyes, and said, Mommy, you're hurting my ears. I will never forget the look on his face as he literally covered his ears. And immediately, I was chastised by the Lord for my conduct towards my children. And how, and then he used that in my life to affect change going forward. I quit yelling at my kids. Not perfectly, but I quit yelling at my kids. I think that because of the practices that were already active in my life, the Lord could move me then to a new understanding about how to parent my kids in a godly way. How then, in that relationship, to live wisely, speak speak graciously, think rightly, and be forgiving, to name a few. So as I close, which that leads me to the why. Why do we do these things? Well, I've already said it, for godliness. Christ-likeness is why. The goal, the end, or purpose of our lives as followers is to be like the Son. Obedience to Jesus brings glory to God. Just as Jesus, in obedience to the Father, went to the cross, bringing glory to the Father. In practicing, we become more like him. We spend time with him, we get to know him, and then to make him known. God has purposed the church to make himself known to all peoples, to the nations, to your children, to your extended family, to your next-door neighbor, and to your co-workers. The mission of the church, established at Pentecost with the coming of the Holy Spirit, is to witness, make him known. Jesus said we would be his witnesses, that we would go into all the world and make disciples, teaching them all that he commanded, and that he would be with us when we went. Can we make disciples if we're not living a biblical Christian life? Not practicing and holding fast to what we've been taught? Our Christian conduct, stemming from our spiritual disciplines, show the world what Christ is like, who he is. Knowing we are on this journey of becoming like Christ, of being transformed into his image, and that it is a work of the Spirit in us, Christ in us, that makes it possible I want to close with these words from Paul in Philippians chapter 1. For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, I do thank you so much that you have given us your word. Thank you for the life of the Apostle Paul. Lord, you know I no longer chafe at those words, imitate me. But I see them as is wise counsel from a man who knew and loved you so much and had counted the cost, had, was willing to pay the price to be with you and to be like you. I pray, Lord, that as we grow in our walk, as we desire to know you more, that that would be our testimony. 
but having counted the cost, we have determined you are worth it. And so we are going to practice knowing you more, practice being like you by carrying out these activities of worship, Bible reading, spending time in prayer, serving the church, serving our community. Because that is you. That is, that is you. And so we thank you for your word. Thank you for these ladies, and I pray, Lord, that you would just continue by your spirit to grow them into the image of your son. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Thank you.